This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Matt Wagner is curator of fishes at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and he joins us this morning to talk about the disappearing freshwater mussels. Spending most of their lives buried in mud and stream beds, freshwater mussels can be easy to miss, but these hidden creatures actually help shake uh, the ecosystems. So throughout the show, we'll learn about the various strengths of the mussels, and as always, Dr. Major is here, ready to take your pet questions. See, now our producer, Java, I think that's a pun that he didn't realize, the strength of the mussels. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) You can join our conversation this morning with a phone call. The number is one 877 MPB ring. It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you uh, that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at six. So good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. You know, this weather has been unusual. We've had a lot of rain, and then we had a cold snap. Now it's warmed up a little bit more, so we're back to the rain. Uh, but the other interesting thing about the cold is that um, South Florida has been dealing with this explosion of the iguana population. And now that it's gotten cold, uh, the iguanas, uh, I guess, froze and started basically falling from trees. But they're not dead, and I heard that when it warms back up, they'll be back to being iguanas, I guess. Um any any thoughts on on that? That seems really interesting. Yeah, it is. They, you know, don't don't be walking under a tree when one falls on you. <laughs> uh, they're very, you know, they're just really not designed to stand that cold. They're, if I'm not mistaken, I don't know that there are any naturally occurring iguanas in Florida. I think these are invasive. Uh, I did read a report. A guy lives on one of the islands there, and they actually have an iguana patrol. Mm. guys that come around and because they're getting so uh common if you will and and overrunning the place in in certain areas but yes they they basically i guess you could say they go in what estivation or torpor right some sort of torpor and uh (laughs) they just can't stand the cold uh and usually they're in trees so as they get uh as they get cold, they're going to fall. Yeah, and it depends on how long they're frozen as to whether right. or not they're okay. going to wake up, exactly. evidently, yeah. Yeah. or how yeah. deeply frozen they are. I don't know what effect this is having. Probably none on the pythons. Uh, they probably just kind of hunker down and yeah, I come back out when it warms up. Digging the warm right. mud and. Yeah make it yeah i mean our, our native lizards do something similar like when you unravel yeah. your hose and you find that a null hanging out in there it just doesn't weigh five pounds and isn't going to hit you on the head so yeah we had a, a map turtle that we had left in the aquarium on the porch once and frozen for a couple of days and it thawed and was swimming and eating again in 48 pretty, hours pretty amazing yeah uh, but it has been, because I remember earlier in the year, uh, as you kind of referenced, Dr. Major, they were allowing sort of open season on iguanas because it was becoming a real problem. A problem. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess it's mostly in, in South Florida. Um, interestingly enough, with the cold weather, the NFL has its Pro Bowl in Orlando every year. And I was reading today that some of the players were sort of expecting to go out there and enjoy the nice warm weather. And it's just a little bit chilly down there. So uh, you never know what to expect when it comes yeah. to the weather. And part of the deal with the iguanas, I think, is that they get in bird nests and eat the eggs and eat the baby birds. Yeah, that's I mean, that's probably, probably you know, other things they do, too. But that's they may even eat. 
They're, native lizards. I don't I mean, know they're, what they're, yeah. they're mainly vegetarians. They're gonna, yeah. They can decimate vegetation, though. Right. But like, they'll eat the eggs, won't they? I think I'm, they'll eat eggs. I have no clue about that. I well, don't know like, veg. It's kind of like the squirrels robbing the bluebird nest, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I guess a, a lot of things will eat <laughs> Yeah, they're opportunists. Yeah. Uh, we don't know if they're vegetarians or vegans then, I guess. <clears throat> uh, Libby, <laughs> yeah. do you have any events uh, to... Uh, yes, uh, a couple on the coast. Let's see, Saturday... Um, January the 25th, so that's this coming Saturday. Uh, Janet Wright has got a nuthatch survey in Jackson and Harrison counties, and uh, but there's a you have to pre-register for it. So uh, Google Miss Ms Coast and uh, you might be able to go with her on that field trip. It sounds like a lot of fun. They're looking for nuthatches in particular, but she's good birder for everything mm-hmm. and is a wonderful teacher so uh tagging along on that field trip would be a real good experience if you're going to be on the coast and then the first saturday of february that's the first of february uh barbara bowen is leading a field trip on ladner pier and hancock beaches and um emphasizing primarily the beach birds but that'll be a good one too but um i would go online and check that out too and give her a call if you're going to meet them all right. Kevin, uh, incidentally, back to the iguanas, I'm sorry no, to interrupt, but uh, in Central America especially, they're considered a del- delicacy, oh. and uh, they call them chicken of the tree. But um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you like that. But uh, in some areas, they're actually uh, endangered because uh, people catch them and eat oh. them. And uh, I did go to an iguana farm where they were trying to reintroduce uh Iguanas into areas where they had been decimated, but uh, that's interesting. But uh, apparently, they fairly tasty. Have so you ever? You've never tried one then? I've tried a lot of things, but I haven't tried an iguana. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hadn't. So actually, tastes like chicken might actually be the case in that one. Uh, we've got a couple of emails here. This first one actually, uh, someone sent a, a recording along with it because they say, <clears throat> "I live on the Gulf Coast next to the Audubon Nature Center in Pascagoula." <coughs> We've always heard owls, but this was a first. Can you identify it for me? And I think Java has it there, uh, so we can go ahead and listen to that and see if anybody can uh, help uh, figure out uh, what it is. Yeah, if everybody can put their headphones on and um, all my everybody listening, listen closely, because um, it's kind of hard to hear, and I guess I'll go ahead and describe it. It's kind of like a screeching. So just listen, listen for the screeching. That's you can hear all the sounds in the background, but that screeching. Yeah, you can definitely hear the screech. Uh, Libby, any thoughts? Is that a, an egret instead mm. of it an owl? It does not sound like an owl to me. Okay. <laughs> That's all I got. Um, I don't know, but Steve Peterson may be listening, and if he is, he could give us a call about what owl that is or um, text me. Let us know. So there are egrets on the coast? Anybody listening. Oh, yeah, okay. lots of egrets. and. Herons, they they make kind of a noise like that. I know I've heard a gold crown, uh, a um, um, night herons, and a night herons. Yes, night herons will make that. Yeah. 
Would there be anybody at the museum that could help if we were to send that clip home with you? Uh, yes, yeah, Nick can tell us what it is, I'm sure. Okay, well, that's fun. That, and so, again, you know, I think I, I had some frog sounds that I recorded uh, last week. So, again, if you ever see something and can take a picture of it or hear something and want to help uh, uh, get an identification, that's a lot of fun. We can listen to it and try to, to uh, figure out what that is. But we, So we decided it is probably definitely not an owl, but well, we're not no, sure. Well, no, I don't know. Let's, right. let's Steve listen. We'll say see. probably not an owl, but we're not <laughs> sure what it is. It be a mad owl. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So uh, thanks, Josh. We'll see if we can't follow up on that. Uh, And hopefully maybe someone can send you an email reply if we find something out. All right. We've got a caller on the line. So we'll talk to Rick in Olive Branch. Good morning, Rick. You're on the air with us. Good morning, folks. How are y'all doing? Good. What's up? What do you have for us? I have an Australian shepherd that has a a growth on what I would call his bottom lip. Uh, It's right where the dark part of his face uh, turns pink. I mean, right at the edge of his mouth. And it almost looks like a, if it was on a human, I'd call it a tag mole. I mean, it's the same color as the inside of his mouth. It's that pink. And I was wondering if this is, in fact, maybe a tag mole or could it be something uh, more dangerous? Okay. It's the same color as the gums. Is yes, it is. Pink. Now, is it actually on the lip or is it on the uh, gum, on the jaw? Oh, no, it's not on his jaw. It's, okay. on his, it's on his lip. Okay. It probably is something you just described, either a, a tag or if it gets bigger, certainly I, I would have it looked at and probably have it taken off. Uh, it's an unusual place to have a growth, and uh, I, I would watch it closely. Uh, next time you're into your vet, I would definitely have, have them look at it. Well, it looks like it got to a certain size and stopped growing at okay. that point. Uh, it's probably, oh, golly, about the size of an apple seed, something like that. Okay. So it's very small. Uh, yes. And the color, then, of that growth? It's pink. It's, pink. Like the, it's the same color as the interior of his mouth. Okay. I, I would watch it closely, as I said. Have your vet look at it next time you're in. I think it would be wise just to be sure. It doesn't sound like... Something would be a typical malignancy or anything like that, but uh, certainly would bear watching. All right, and, and uh, I want to let y'all know I enjoy y'all show whenever I can pick it up. I'm, uh, I have to pick it up over a distance from Oxford, but uh, uh, enjoy y'all show. All right, thanks for your call, Rick, and thanks for the kind words. Let's uh, get one call in before our next break. It's a canoe in Vicksburg, I think, who might help us try to identify that uh, sound that we heard. You're on the air with us, so go ahead. What do you have for us? Uh, yes, I enjoy the show every time. Um, the the uh, the sound of the animal that I was wondering maybe it's a fox. Hmm. All right. We'll throw that in again. It stumped us, so uh, <laughs> we will certainly <laughs> consider that. So thank you uh, for listening and calling. And for, okay, so that we got two for a fox then now. So that the fox has taken the early lead here in polling. Uh, we'll. Uh, Keep talking about that throughout the hour. Right now, though, we've got a break. Uh, when we get back, we'll begin our discussion with Matt, Wet- <clears throat> Matt Wagner, who's curator of fishes at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We're going to be talking about the importance of freshwater mussels. Call with your questions and comments. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Or you can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more, so stay tuned.
Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Today we're talking with Matt Wagner from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science about freshwater mussels and their importance to aquatic life here in Mississippi. To join our conversation with a comment or question, the phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464. You can also email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Got some calls and some emails to get to, but I want to spend a few minutes uh, talking to Matt. First of all, Matt, thanks for joining us on the show this morning. Thanks for having me. I enjoy it. Uh, If you would, tell us a little bit about your background and some of your duties at the museum as curator of fishes. Um, So I am a non-game fish biologist. I go from the Tennessee line down to I-10, the little small non-game threatened and endangered fishes. Most people don't even know what they are. I'm the guy that goes out and surveys for them. Um, At the museum, I curate our fish collection, which is over 75,000 jars of fish, over a million specimens. And anytime you see a map of a fish in the state, I'm basically the person that all the little dots come from. (laughs) Jars translate to map dots. I guess that's the easiest way to put it. All right, so we're going to talk about freshwater mussels. Uh, so if you can tell us a little bit about those, I'm going to be ignorant here and say, are they related to clams? Um, they are related, but they are not in the same, uh, basically not in the same family as clams. Um, you get a lot of different um, diversity in both saltwater and freshwater, depending on where you are. In the southeastern U.S., we have lots of different species of freshwater mussels that most people don't even know exist. They just think, oh, that's a shell in the river. There's only so many kinds but down here we have a ton um and so is digging for mussels the correct term and if so when's the last time you went digging um i like the term grubbing there's some people that use some other terms um but it would have probably been this fall when we were doing some work on the pascagoula river um and that's we were actually doing a survey trying to get some mussels for some guy in florida that's doing mussel genetics um so yeah um, and as we mentioned in the opener, uh, you know, they're sometimes buried. So are there clues if you when you go grubbing say, hey, this might be an area where we'll find some? Um, so it, it really depends on the species because some species like mucky, sedimenty areas. Um, so you'd see a little backwater off a sandbar. They might be hanging out there. And other ones like clean riffle areas where you're going to have like none of that sediment depending on the species. And they'll be buried in rocks. Um, in Bear Creek and Tishomingo County are one little bit of the Tennessee River. Sometimes they're physically under large rocks, which we don't have in any other streams in the state almost. Um, so it just depends on the habitat you're in and the species you're looking for. And they're not deep or not usually no, very yeah. deep at all. So yeah. you, could, you could just run your hand across the creek if you can't see well enough and usually feel <laughs> a little piece of them sticking up out of them. Yeah, and there's one place in the Delta that our retired guy who actually did all our muscle work took me, and you literally couldn't not, like, walk across the street. The entire bed of the stream was muscles, like hundreds in just a square meter almost. It was kind of amazing. And so, again, I'm completely clueless when it – well, that probably can be said about a lot of things, but especially about <laughs> muscles. So is it – are they in shells? They are in shells. Um, their shells vary in size, shape. Our biggest one is – 
probably the size of a, I don't know, like the small kid's football almost. Um, and our smallest one is literally only about an inch long. Um, so it just depends on the species you're looking for. Um, and the shells have really cool, depending on the species, yet again, they can have grooves on them, they can have different colors, they can have different patterns. Um, the inside of the shell as well as the outside of the shell can have different colors. We've got some with some amazing pink nakers on the inside, uh, some that look kind of almost bluish pink, some that look orange, um, some that are just plain white, um, and just really depends on the species. And we have 83 different species of mussels in Mississippi, so it's quite a diverse group of animals. All right, so why are they important? Um, I like to think of mussels as our freshwater filters. Um, and for that reason, I will never eat a freshwater mussel, and it's also illegal to eat them in the state. Um, but if you think about it, they're sitting there, they're filter feeding. They have an in-current and ex-current siphon, so water goes in one and out the other. And they're basically filter feeding on all the little microorganisms in the water. Um, but they're also collecting probably all the mercury going through the water and all the other terrible things. So not only are they a good filter, but they're also sensitive. So if we have some type of pollution thing going on, they're going to be having a big die-off because they're putting it right through their whole, uh, I guess, intestinal tract. Um, and, and if very many of them die, you will you tend to know it because they'll, they'll kind of open up and shows. die and float up and smell bad. Yep. So you know it. Uh, and so they, they help other aquatic invertebrates that are in, in streams and rivers and things? Well, yeah, in a sense, they're, they're going to make a system more clear. There's some really cool videos on Facebook where they put, um, like, a 10-gallon fish tank with mussels in it and without in it, and they put, like, just water from, like, the Great Lakes or something, and you see in, like, an hour, the one with the mussels in it is already clear. Hmm. So they can affect our water clarity, and they also can help stabilize the stream bed. That might sound kind of weird, but if you put a bunch of rocks on the bottom of the stream, those rocks have to be mussels, they can kind of add structure so to say and all our other little invertebrates and tiny fish can go and hide in those little areas and use them as structure as well and what about uh, locomotion how do they get around or do they get around they do get around they're not super quick though they have a foot um it's just basically this big old muscle that reaches out and kind of pulls them um they can bury themselves pretty darn good and they can go up and down in the mud or the gravel and stuff um but it's it's not a quick process um, and a lot of times, if you'll see them, they'll close up and basically make themselves a little watertight, or I guess airtight almost, shell. Um, because if they get stranded for a bit out of water, they can still last for a little while. You know, Matt, it might be worth mentioning how the larvae move, because that's really how the species moves around. Yeah, so mussels have this crazy life history. Um, without fish and, I guess, salamanders, you really don't have freshwater mussels reproducing and moving. So mussels have this little lures they put out. They look almost like a fishing lure. Some of them actually have a little, like, eye spot on it, so it would just look like a little fish. And they sit there, and they'll twitch it and dangle it. And then something like a bass comes along and will try and eat that. Well, when it does that, the mussel shoots out all of its little larvae, and they latch onto the bass's gills. Well, mussels are not going to move miles upstream by crawling with a little foot. They could, but it might be a decade or two. Um, so those larvae attach to the bass's gills. They then The bass swims around, hopefully upstream, if you want upstream migration of the mussels, and eventually as they develop, they drop off the gills and will settle out in the substrate, and then you have they'll basically turn into an adult mussel and slowly develop and do the same thing. So mussels without fish cannot really move, but the mussels will probably outlive most fish species because they can be very long-lived as well. So would that be an example of a symbiotic relationship where it doesn't really hurt the fish that they're kind of using the gills to be transport themselves? Yeah, pretty much, unless, I mean, 
there's sometimes that I guess it, it could add a little bit of weight, but it's probably a negligible amount of weight. But there's not just big bass. There's some mussels that only use itty-bitty fish called darters that are like two to three inches long, and they literally clasp the whole head of the darter in the mussel shell while they're injecting the larvae. There's really cool videos of this online. It's got to be traumatic. Yeah. yeah. Like you're just you, you really need to look at that stuff. <laughs> that's the last time they'll try for that fish, that's for sure. <laughs> Uh, we've got a caller on the line, so let's invite uh, Jerry from Madison into our conversation. Good morning, Jerry. You're on the air with us. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I have a question uh, about the mussels. Isn't it true that there used to be a industry of collecting mussels to harvest the freshwater pearls and use the shells also to make buttons? Yeah. Uh, yes, there. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Okay. No, I was... And, I was just going to say, also, and this is the reason that the Pearl River has the name uh-huh. that it does is that, and I'll hang up and let you respond to that. Okay. Um, I won't vouch for the name of the Pearl River because I've only been in Mississippi. Libby will talk to that. Um, but there was an extremely large button industry, and there's actually some cool – I guess it's not cool because our freshwater mussels, are, a lot of them are currently imperiled. But the shells, and you'll just see they punched as many buttons as they could out of shells, and they specifically went for some of our larger species because you got more bang for your buck that way. Um, but in general, the freshwater pearls that if you get to see them, I've only seen a few of them because we don't shuck mussels continually because we're trying to conserve them. Um, they're really weird shaped. It's not like the pearls you're used to seeing on like a pearl necklace or something. They almost look like little like shiny shards almost or something. Um, but I'll let Libby talk to the Pearl River name. Yeah, they're actually, that is where the Pearl River gets its name is from the pearls. And they were valued. And um, when you're cleaning a lot of them, or uh, opening a lot of them, you're going to find a good many of the pearls. I think they're really pretty. I've got a lot of jewelry with freshwater pearl, and um, it's it's really pretty stuff. It, until fairly recently, there was an industry in Alabama, Mississippi, not quite so much, but in the distant past, there was a big industry all around. I've kind of got a history of that. My father studied uh, freshwater mussels. Uh, when I was young, and part of his survey was um, in the Tennessee River, and uh, they were trying to come up with ways to repopulate because the button industry had crashed. And, of course, before plastic buttons just completely took over, they thought, wow, maybe we can find a way to um, grow mussels and and revive that industry. And freshwater um, pearls played a part of that, too, because the pearls were um, valued enough that they wanted to bring those back. But, you know, basically what he said is you've changed the habitat too much. His feeling was that the industry had not really knocked back the populations, that when the populations crashed of most of those big mussels, it was when they changed the, po- the um, rivers to such an extent that the gravel beds were not there where they mostly lived. All right, Jerry, thanks for the call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. If you'd like to join our conversation, you can give us a call today at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464 or you can email the show, send it to animals at mpbonline.org When we get back, we'll talk about where and what are some of the best ways to catch fish here in the state uh, and also we'll talk, continue to talk about mussels with our guest, uh, Matt Wagner also Dr. Major here, ready to take some pet questions. So give us a call or give us an email. This is Creature Comforts from MPB Think Radio. We'll be back with more after this.
I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today we're visiting with Matt Wagner, who's curator of fishes at the museum, and we're talking today about freshwater mussels. If you'd like to join the conversation with a question or a comment, the phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. More muscle conversation in just a minute, but we do have a pet email here that says we have an older female cat that's an inside-outside cat. She's been an only pet for several years. We trapped two brother kittens born in the neighborhood and fixed them. We're trying to blend the brothers into the home. Any suggestions are welcome. Thanks. Love your show. This is from Jane, and I would just my thought. I'm not a veterinarian, but Jane, I think you might have a, a difficult road ahead there. Maybe not. What do you think, Doctor Major? Well, I guess the qu- one question is how old is the female, and I don't think she actually said age wise. It says older, right? Right. You're right. So, a lot of times, you know, there may be more problems with the two two males getting along than with uh, her. And of course, if they're outside. Cats, bringing them inside could be an issue. I don't know how old they are either. But uh, quite often cats do pretty well. They like their own space. They don't like to be crowded unnecessarily. I've seen cats that seem to hate each other, and then all of a sudden they're laying on top of each other. So uh, don't don't try to second-guess a cat. Uh, we were talking about that earlier. But uh, I would say that probably this can work, especially if the males are fairly young. And uh, this female cat is not too old. Okay. She's old and arthritic. She's not going to like any of them, okay? But I, I don't know how old she is, so good luck with that. Hope it works. But as you said, maybe make sure they kind of have their own space to where if things aren't going right. well, they can kind of right. retreat into their exactly. corners and not be bothered by each right. other. Cats like to have uh, some isolation. The thing is true, even in a feral cat population, if you had uh, – 15 cats in a feral cat population, they might come together at night in a central location like a barn or somewhere to hide. Uh, but in general, they have their own little area that they would go out and hunt in, uh, spaced apart. They don't really like uh, too much competition. All right. I think we got a couple of muscle questions on the line, so let's go back to the phone, starting again uh, with Jerry, who's called in today. Jerry, you're on the air with us. Go ahead, please. Hi, Jerry, are you in there? All right. Let me put you back on hold, see if we can't figure that one out. We'll press on. Next, it's Carrie in Biloxi. Good morning. Go ahead, please. Uh, yeah, this is Carrie. Go ahead. Y'all? Yeah, go ahead. I got a, a question or a comment about mussels. Uh, years ago, back in the 50s, there used to be a, a good population of mussels in Clarko State Park in the, in the lake. And uh, I wonder if that's still there uh, and what kind they are. And also... Uh, he was talking about uh, rocky streams. Chunky Rivers is a pretty rocky stream. And we see a lot of mussels there, or at least we would see places where the coons had eaten the mussels and we would just see the shells. And I wonder if they're still there. So 
specifically when I was talking about the rocky streams, we'll start with that one. Um, Tishomingo has that a lot of that really large rocks all over the place. We do have other small outcrops like in the Chunky and the Strong and even some other tribs of the Pearl. Mind you, I haven't been in every stream statewide. Um, and we do have mussels in some of those areas, but specifically in Bear Creek, there are rocks almost everywhere, and you don't see them in a lot of other places except in between the large rocks in Bear Creek. Um, at least from my personal experience, having snorkeled a lot of Bear Creek. Um, the other questions we had. And I think Clarko State Park still has mussels, and those are f- probably those what I've always called floaters. It's a thin-shelled, carry. do you remember that? Was it the... I they're, don't remember. They're kind of lightweight, yeah. But there are a couple of species that do fine in, um, probably more than that, but a couple that I've been associated with that um, do fine in a, a lake kind of situation as long as the water quality is pretty good. And as far as I know, we've had no major mussel die-offs in the Chunky or the Pascagoula in general. Libby, know anything about any of that? I don't know. Yeah, the, the lower <laughs> pearl, I've, I've witnessed a couple of bad die-offs, but I, I think the Pascagoula and the Chunky are good places to look for mussels, actually. All right, uh, Carrie, thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Uh, let's see if we got Jerry on the line again. Jerry, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. All right. Sorry, Jerry. Let me put you back on hold. We'll see if we can't get you on there so we can uh, get your comment. Um, <clears throat> Matt, are there other aquatic creatures that like to eat mussels? Um, muskrats are well known for it. I guess they're semi-aquatic. Um, they'll make what are called middens, and that's actually a great thing. Uh, Libby's husband, Paul, would enjoy finding muskrat middens because they're better at collecting mussels than we are potentially. <laughs> um, but they'll pile all their shells in one spot, and it's it's a great place to actually find a bunch of the diversity. Um, other creatures that use them, their empty shells are used by some of the native fishes actually for nesting. The tiny little catfish I talked about last time I was here, the mad toms, they'll actually use them like a little cavity and they'll spawn in there and they'll guard their eggs until they hatch and then they'll go off on their merry way. Um, but yeah, so I guess that's two of the things that do, but most of the aquatic creatures that are going to be using them, um, apart from our invasive, uh, black carp on the Mississippi river, which can get to like four, four or five feet long and eats freshwater mussels. Um, which is a huge threat to them. Uh, there's not too many other ones that are really using them that aren't mammals that are eating them. All right, so uh, how would you describe the health of the freshwater mussel population in Mississippi? Um, there's some areas that are doing great. We've lost some species, um, specifically on the Tentom, uh, or the, what historically was the Tom Bigby River. There's a few species that have gone basically extinct since the creation of the Tentom Waterway. Um, there's some other places that are doing great, but siltation from our change of the land has really caused a lot of the areas that used to have clean substrate to be covered in silt, or when we channelize things, we take away those really important gravel beds that kind of form the habitat for a lot of our native mussels. I guess that was kind of vague, but it's a, it's a big question to answer for 83 species throughout <laughs> an entire state. <laughs> so, uh, so you're saying that uh, human behavior in terms of maybe both uh, stuff done on the land, but also the way we might possibly divert and change river channels and that sort of thing is is part of the reason that some of the populations are suffering. I would say that's a right on the head way to summarize. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so how can we help prevent that or maybe, you know, uh, conserve the mussel population? Uh, one of the best things to do is, well, I guess not channelize, but also riparian buffers. I love it when a landowner asks me this question, when they find out whether there's, they're talking about mussels or fish, what can I do to help? When you leave that 
25 to 50 foot buffer on the edge of the stream. One, it helps your land from eroding down into the water and just sloughing off and losing land. But two, the root structure of all those trees and all the plants act like a filter for that stream. Um, so, you know, if you've got a crop and you left a 50 foot buffer around the edge of the stream, that's going to help that stream to not get filled with mud and sediment running off that crop. And I would say as an added bonus, you have a little natural area there, uh, you know, that you can enjoy as well. So uh, we've got a couple more phone calls to get to. Let's go first to uh, George, who's called in today. Good morning, George. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Hey, thanks a lot. Um, just a comment from listening earlier regarding the movement of the muscles and how fast they move. Uh, I just, there was a brief discussion about that. Uh, with young children, we try to canoe the uh, pearl from the spillway down to Jackson a couple of times this summer, three, four times. And we've noticed that there's a couple of sandbars on the right bank descending uh, past the Lakeland Bridge that have the largest freshwater mussels I've ever seen. And uh, as a diversion, uh, sometimes when we pull up for a shoreline or to hang out and throw a football or something, we'll pass the sandbar and come up on the the downstream side and uh, we'll actually get out and pick the mussels if we don't spook them and they'll race and you can see them you'll see them as they go away and they leave a nice trail but they're a lot faster than i think most people think um a lot of times if you if you stop upstream and stir up sediment it seems like they go ahead and take off before you ever get to see them but uh, i just wanted to comment that they're, they're fast enough to where you can sit and watch them move five to six feet uh, in a matter of minutes. So, um, I, I don't. Th- I fully believe you on that by all means. Mm-hmm. But in general, for they're not going to be migrating miles is more what I'm getting at. Like going from one sandbar to the other in a few minutes, like a fish could if they swam really fast. So the ability of you know a fish can move many miles in a day where a mussel's not going to make that same movement. Um, but a lot of times they are pretty quick to rebury themselves. If, if you would just set one down and see it, I bet you guys have seen this yourself. They just, they get back into the mud pretty darn quick. Right. I've, we've never seen them move more than, you know, eight to 10 feet over a period of 10 minutes. I, I didn't mean they would get up and swim off. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. kind, of, kind of fun to watch my tracks. Yeah. They're faster right. than a snail. Yeah. Uh, thanks, George, for your call. That might be a new uh, recreation there, <laughs> muscle racing there. You know, they have catfish races sometimes at the uh, catfish festival, so uh, maybe we've discovered a new sport. Uh, this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Our guest today is um, Matt Wagner, the curator of fishes at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We're talking today about freshwater mussels. If you'd like to join the conversation with a question or a comment, you can call one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. Six seven two seven four six four. You can also email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Our friend Kathleen from Osaka has called in today and is on the line. Good morning, Kathleen. Go ahead. Well, good morning, guys. I've been enjoying your show for weeks, and I, I didn't have anything to call in because I was learning so much, so I appreciate <laughs> that. Listen, I did find something strange in the garden, like to give me a heart attack. It was only about an inch long little lime green frog and it had like um sort of an orangish red little dot uh spots on its back and a few little black dots and it looked like it had a pointed nose never seen anything like that before it didn't make a sound or anything so i couldn't tell you 
How big was it? I know how y'all like us to make a fool out of ourselves. Make sense. You said about an inch and real long legs. Well, I I didn't see the undercarriage. I'm thinking that it's a green tree frog. No, it wasn't a green tree frog. It wasn't a green tree frog. Google cricket frogs. Oh, yeah, look at that. Cricket with a really pointed snout and the colors. Cricket frogs can have a variety of colors. That's what's coming to mind for me. But yet again, I'm a fish biologist, so... (laughs) Another thing I wanted to ask you on these muscles, uh, can can they possibly be cultivated like in a, a, a private property? I mean, can you do that? Most species really want swift running water, and and with a pebbly base, you know, like a, a, a either a sandbar or kind of small rock base they're pretty particular so it's it's very hard and people have tried for years to cultivate them and there are a lot of publications about it and there has been a little bit of success uh very limited but it's it's not an easy thing to do by any means okay well thanks for the information guys all right have a good new year thanks kathleen Happy 50th anniversary. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Thanks, Kathleen. Uh, MPB, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Both the TV, well, the TV, actually, radio came along a little bit later. But uh, Mississippi Public Broadcasting celebrating its 50th year on the air this year. So we're having a year-long celebration. So stay tuned for special events and things, uh, programs, both on the radio and the TV side as we celebrate. Let's get one more call in before our next break. And it goes to James in Hattiesburg. Good morning, James. Go ahead. Good morning. I wanted to ask, uh, I, I had the privilege of going to a party at the University of Miami in Miami and uh, meeting a federal regulator for fisheries, and we got to talk about the role uh, bureaucrats play in making sure populations of harvestable fish are maintained. And I wanted to ask, with the freshwater site to Mississippi, is that done on the state level? Or is there federal involvement uh, when it comes to species that are threatened or endangered? This is a DEQ question, not a Matt Wagner question. <laughs> um, I'm going to have to decline to answer that because I do not know how to. <laughs> now what, you're talking about water quality issues? No, ma'am. I, I mean, if, if one of the mussels uh, goes from being at a healthy population uh-huh. level to threatened, oh, is that gotcha. something oh, yeah. the state has to solve, or is that something the federal government comes in and solves? Um, so typically what will happen is there will be an issue with it. Somebody will actually usually sue the Fish and Wildlife Service about it. They will then ask the state or fund the state agency, which in our case would be MDWFP, to go out and survey for that species, and we would report to them how we found them, just the data, not with an opinion of whether they should be listed or not. Then the Fish and Wildlife Service would make the assessment whether they should be listed as threatened or endangered or not listed. Yeah, so that's where Matt's the state and my husband Paul is with the feds. So that's, but they would work together, I guess is the answer to yeah. your question. They would work together to protect those uh, species that they believe are, um, the populations are crashing. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks for your call, James. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Time for one final break this hour. We'll get back. John's on the line with a freshwater mussel question, and we have another pet email for Dr. Major. Still time, though, for you to work in a phone call or an email. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll wrap up Creature Comforts after this, so stay tuned. 
Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield. And our guest for the day is Matt Wagner from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, where he is the curator of fishes. But today we're talking about freshwater mussels. Uh, Still time to join the conversation with a phone call at 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. John has been holding on the line, so we'll go to his call now. John, thanks for calling in. You're on the air. Thanks for having me. Uh, one quick statement, another thing for Mississippians to be proud of, proud of that I don't think a lot of people are aware of, uh, MDFP and DWFP is widely regarded uh, by people across the country and similar agencies as one of the finest. And uh, I agree, having traveled a lot and spoken with rangers with different state uh, parks or whatever, they all invariably seem to mention that, and I just wanted to throw that in. Thanks. Um, yeah, it's, it, uh, Matt, if I could go back in time, I'd like to pursue a career like you have. I think it's fascinating. Um, I live two golf shots away from where y'all are broadcasting. I've grown up on the Pearl, and I don't I don't know if people really, truly understand the uh, the jewel that it is. Um, you can uh, George talked about floating from the spillway down to LaFleur's Bluff. That's a great thing to do for free on a daily basis. Thank you, John. Um, what a yeah, wonderful, I, I, positive call. Well, it's just a fact. Uh, you know, it's, um, it's, it's just a playground for kids of all ages. And uh, I'm a park member, so I go to uh, LaFleur's Bluff all the time. Uh, but enough from my blabbering about freshwater <laughs> mussels. Yeah, I've always wondered because um, I'm pretty much fish and I catch and release, but I'm always on the river and I see these huge mussels. Uh, are they edible? Um. Do not eat them, one, because it's illegal to harvest mussels, um, okay, either right. for consumption or bait. Um, no way can you legally take freshwater mussels. Um, but, oh, God, I had a second point. What was well, it? Well, the bigger point is health-wise. Oh, yeah, they, that's it. They really um, they concentrate poisons, and they live a long time. So those big ones, they could be 40, 50 years old, and they've been concentrating any mercury they found or anything else. You can um, study the bodies of mussels and get a, an idea of what chemicals are in that body of water. So, yeah, and they, also they even bacteria and things. Yeah, E. coli. I bet is abound in them. So, yeah. So do not eat them. Yeah. All right, John. We appreciate your call. Uh, this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting today with Matt Wagner and talking about freshwater mussels. Matt, we talked about uh, that. You know. Uh, populations of some of the species are suffering and we're trying to conserve and have more awareness and i guess it's it's a little bit difficult because again these are things that people maybe not notice it's not like an eagle or a bear or some creature that a lot of people identify with is there a challenge getting people excited or interested in trying to preserve these uh, their habitats and things it it really is because it's not just that they're underwater when you pull a fish up a fish at least moves is usually pretty colorful but a mussel is a shell and it's it looks like a rock basically um it's it's hard to convey the importance but when you go back to that idea that they're the filters of our rivers um the 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 ecological value of them is unfathomable um, whether or not people see a commercial value in that, that's negligible. But the, how they keep our waterways clean is super important. And you brought a book with you today. So if you would uh, tell us about your book. 
Um, so MDWFP, in cooperation with the Army Corps of Engineers and the Fish and Wildlife Service, has made a textbook-like book that is the guide to the identification of freshwater mussels in Mississippi. Um, if anybody wants a copy of this, it's like 300 pages long. It's a PDF for free online. Uh, if you Google U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Jackson, Mississippi, um, the very first link you'll see under information you can use is a nice big old free PDF of this book. Um, we're hoping to get them printed next year, um, and they will be available through the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science and maybe some other places, but it's going to be a year till we can actually get them physically printed. But free PDF. <laughs> and I have to put a plug in. The, the photography makes mussels look absolutely beautiful, and Matt did all the photography. Yeah. And the pictures are beautiful. Yeah. Uh, when, you, when you clean a mussel up, they turn out really nice. <laughs> you, when well, you dig them out of the mud there, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. So, but if you They're are really curious cool. what mussels you're seeing in the PDF, uh, it, it's hyperlinked so you can click through and see all the different mussels. But it's got distribution maps, it's got photographs, and it's got a little species account on each one. So you not only know uh, a little bit about it, but how the mussels doing. We've talked a little bit about them being threatened or endangered. It talks about which species are threatened and endangered throughout the state. So t tell us a little bit about how you went about, uh, you know, photographing and, and, and putting the book together. I imagine it was sort of in the course of your of your of your duties. But if you would tell us a little bit about putting the book together. So taking a photo of a shell sounds really simple, <laughs> um, but they have multiple like levels to them because it's not a flat surface. Um, so each photo is actually using a cool image stacking software where you take like 10 photos of the shell at different heights, stack them all together, and then you crop out all the background that looks weird. Um, and But what we did is we took pictures of the inside and outside of the shell for all 83 different species. And some of these mussels um, are really annoying in that they can have multiple colors on the inside. So for ones that can have a white, pink, or orange inside, we've taken photos of the, all three different colors so you can see the variation. But this is really meant to be a book so you can say, okay, I know I'm at this spot in Mississippi. You can go through the different maps and the pictures and figure out what species you're holding. All right. Um, and so you're saying available as a PDF now and probably within the year, maybe the book next will come year. out? Next, next year. year. Okay. All right. Uh, we've got a couple of minutes left, and we do have an email here for Dr. Major that says, My 14-year-old female, Mutt, has developed pretty bad incontinence. She used to leak a little urine when she would sit down and relax or fall hard asleep, but in recent months she started just openly going in the corner of the living room. We tried to keep a close eye on her and make sure she was getting access to go out very often, but she would go out when what she would go when she had just come back in. She'd become a mostly outdoor dog of late, and we miss having her in the house. Is there anything that we can do about it? Yes, you need to talk to your veterinarian, and you may already have, but uh, as animals or females age, uh, I'm sure she's probably been spayed, uh, the ovaries are removed, and you develop an estrogen uh, deficit. Uh, and phenylpropanolamine, or proin, is the name of the drug, is commonly available through your veterinarian. Uh, strengthens the tone of the bladder and, and seems to help with uh, this incontinence. Most of the time it starts out when the uh, animal is either asleep or lying down that uh, you have this leakage, which can be quite substantial. Uh, so I would talk to your veterinarian about that and uh, see if maybe that particular drug will help. All right. Uh, just a couple minutes left. Matt, we talked about the, the pearls that uh, freshwater mussels produce. Uh, how does that occur? Um, as far as I know, it's basically something gets into the mussel, and it's its 
its way of trying to get rid of it in a sense. It covers it in the nacre, the same material that it puts on its shell. Um, so, I mean, when they create uh, pearls, like in the industry where they are doing it, like for pearl necklaces and stuff, they take an actual little sphere and will inject it into the um, the oyster or whatever they're doing. And But in the freshwater mussel, it's probably usually a piece of sand that gets into it and it doesn't get flushed out somehow and nacre builds around that um, or some other dirt or something else that got in there. But it, it's literally just a, a way for it to actually, I guess, protect itself in a way. And so if someone never opens it and it takes it out, it would just be in, in the shell. But, again, it's it's coated, and so it's basically it's a defense mechanism, but it would stay in the muscle for as long as the muscle's alive? I'm assuming so. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. If, when you open it, it looks very much like opening a, a – a, um, well, any kind of a shell that mm-hmm. you're going to open, any of the saltwater things that you eat – like if you're opening an oyster and you might find a pearl in the oyster. I don't know. You've probably found every now and then I found a little tiny beginnings of a pearl in an oyster. I mean, I found a pearl in a fried oyster I was eating and almost cracked my tooth a few yeah. months ago. So, yeah. Well, it's, it looks the same. There's a, there's a soft body inside that muscle. It, they're all different shapes and colors and all that. So they're different from a oyster, but not a whole lot different. And then those little pearls will be in there and they'll be the same color as the inside of the shell mm-hmm. so in those purple the, the shells that have purple nacre they'll have a little purple pearl okay that's going to wrap us up for today creature comforts is a production of mississippi public broadcasting think radio funding provided in part by listeners like you to hear today's show or a previous show you can go to mpbonline.org slash creature comforts our show is produced each week by java chapman and our call screener today was liz gill For Libby Hartfield, Dr. Troy Major, and our guest Matt Wagner, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned because up next, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.